1992, something amazing was assembled. Stronger than the Avengers. Sorry, Austin. More dedicated than the Justice League was the Dream Team. The U.S. Olympic team dubbed the greatest group ever to be assembled. It's a veritable who's who of NBA legends of Michael Jordan, Charles Barkley, Larry Bird, Carl Malone, Magic Johnson, Patrick Ewing, Clyde Drexler, and of course, Christian Leitner. And it was the fantasy team of all fantasy teams. You couldn't put together a better team than this. And it was coached by a guy named Chuck Daly. And Daly had a couple, uh, a pair of NBA championships with the Detroit Pistons. And so he had achieved much in the NBA, but neither of his championship squads had these huge personalities on it. They didn't have this stunning star figure and this great big ego. And so the worry of the coaching staff of the Olympic team was, how is Coach Daly going to manage a team filled with the NBA's elite elitists? How is he going to manage this? And one assistant coach kept hounding him saying, hey, hey, coach, what are you going to do? We get these guys together. What's your message? How are we going to unify this? Because there's a lot of egos. There's a lot of people who demand playing time. What are you going to do? What's, what, what's your message? What's your point? And this coach was shocked when Coach Daly was just like, I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out when I get there. And sure enough, <clears throat> they show up the first day. The team's all assembled. And without hesitation or preparation, Coach Daly gets up in front of him. He says this, I have one rule. Don't be late. Michael, if you're late, it's insult to Charles. Charles, if you're late, it's being rude to Patrick. Patrick, if you're late, it's rude to Magic. And that was it. It was done. That was his message to the team. It was a superstar ego team. And the next day came around and the coaches showed up at the facility, uh, got ready to load the bus. It was an hour before they were scheduled to be there. And as the coaches get there, already sitting on the bus is Michael Jordan. And it wasn't long before the rest of the team joined him. And the story goes, through the remainder of their training, anytime there was a team event, Michael Jordan was the first one there, and the latest any other member of the team got to the practice, the scrimmage, the bus, or the dinner was 30 minutes before the scheduled time. And see, this team was gunning for the greatest prize in the greatest tournament with the greatest athletes, but what framed their whole venture was this rare glimpse of humility, submitting their plans and their identities to the word of the coach and the good of the team. And tonight, Peter is concluding, First Peter. We're wrapping it up. And as he's ending his book, he's commissioning his team. He's taking the tension and the message he has spent five chapters developing for us, and he's now equipping us to go out equipped. Uh, that's a double equipping. He's, he's sending you out with everything that he's told you to do and all of the implications of his gospel. And the message he's preaching is a similar message to what Daly preached to his team in 1992. And what we're going to see tonight is this, that gospel humility brings clarity and confidence to our whole life. In the same way, uh, the, the humility of not being rude and showing up on time brought clarity and also brought confidence and cohesion to this group of players, so it does for us. And so in here are college students and young adults, and we, if you want direction, if you want hope, if you want endurance, if you want clarity, if you want confidence, Peter is going to anchor all of those in the hope of the gospel. And all of us, just like that team, we desire those things. And Peter is going to show us in real life, even more so than sports, even the Olympics, the stakes are higher and the rewards are greater than we could ever imagine. So let's pray, and then we'll look at God's word.
Lord, uh, this is an amazing book which you have given us in 1 Peter. And how amazing is it as we come to the end to think that there was at one point a group of people where this was the only glimpse of the gospel they had. This precious writing that you have preserved for us as your word through the power of your Holy Spirit that we can look at and take for granted. But Lord, this was a commission to a desperate people. This was a commission to Christians who were stranded and isolated and being pressed. And the pressures of life were exponential because of the pressures of life that were responding specifically to their Christianity. And so it's reasonable, Lord, that we would find ourselves in this text Because we have the same gospel and we live in the same world and the same God who speaks to them is the same God who still speaks to us. And so I pray that the impact and weight of this book is we've unpacked it over uh, over weeks and months and we have missed, we've never sat down and got this one-time recitation of it, but through the power of your Holy Spirit, you can bring everything together and send us out with the weight that you desire. And so we ask that that happens tonight. We pray this in your name. Amen. So I think one aim of college is to give yourself a clear understanding of who you are, right? And self-awareness is a good thing. We all run into people who lack self-awareness, and it's never a pleasing conversation. We always walk away kind of feeling awkward. And This is one truth that the gospel in our culture holds together, uh, and we, find, we agree on, is that you need to have a right understanding of who you are. And Peter is going to frame this understanding. How is it that you should view yourself? And he's going to frame this in the first part of his passage, what Chris just read for us, in 1 Peter 5, verse 6. And this is what he says. So I, or excuse me, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Really simple. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you. But what we see is our first point tonight. We see Peter's message regarding us as a message of humble clarity. And what Peter's saying here is the clarity you need to understand yourself, the clarity you need to understand the world, the clarity you need to discern what God wants you to do or even what you want to do in your life is the clarity that comes when we understand the humbling power of the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And in this one verse, Peter lays the foundation for everything else he's going to establish in this text and everything he's going to establish is a response to what Peter calls here the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves, therefore, by means of the mighty hand of God. And we talked a little bit about humility last week at the end of a a chapter looking at how the church is led. Um, And as we discussed just really briefly, it's hard for you to just take the task, if I were to say, go and be humble. It's hard to do that on your own. Because in order to be humbled, it, it... you require some sort of outside event or outside circumstance which humbles you. Humble is a response to something. My wife has had, I was gonna say my wife and I have had two children, but given the scope of this story, I was very minimally involved in the having of children. And uh, we have a boy and we have a girl, and I remember holding each of them in the hospital like moments after they were born, and here's this, this scared, hulking man holding this delicate, fragile infant But in that moment, I've never felt so small. In that moment, I didn't step back and be like, I made that, dang it. I was was like shaking and I was nervous and I was in awe of this miracle of life that had come. 
And in the same way, you don't stand at the foot of a towering waterfall or summit Mount Sentinel and look around and convince yourself to be emotional. You don't convince yourself to be surprised by the grandiose nature of what you're seeing. You're struck by it. Instead, you're responding to something that's outside of you, something bigger than you. And what happens is when you encounter that bigness, that greatness, you actually find your place in it somehow. It explains you. It makes sense of who you are. You find where you fit in the pecking order of things. And what's really happening is you're having this really realistic experience of who you are. Something's happening to you and there's a response and it's humbling you. You're realizing truth and everyone will be humbled at some point in their life. And not just in little ways that we experience daily, but in an ultimate way. The author of Hebrews describes this ultimate humiliation this way in Hebrews 4.13. Speaking of the word of God, it says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. There's this awkward humiliation in that text, this exposure. And this is something that Peter has already talked about in 1 Peter 4 verse 5 where he says this, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And so there will be a day where you and everything you've done in your life will be exposed. It will be laid bare, it will be uncovered, and you'll be humbled. Because in that moment, your darkest thought, your deepest sin, your dirtiest secret will be brought to light before God and before the whole world. And even if you have no moral compass and you say, well, what is sin but a relative idea of morality? There will be a day when your, your philosophy of life is exposed as, will this stand up? Is this true? And in that moment, you will be humbled because you'll realize there's something greater going on. And that humiliation is a humiliation yet to come. It's a humiliation in the future, at the end of all things, when we stand before the judgment seat of God. But here, in verse 6, Peter is talking about a humiliation which has already happened. Peter's hope for you, my hope for you as a pastor, is that you would find your humiliation not in what is to come, but in what is already past. And the humiliation which is past is Jesus dying on the cross for your sins. This is the first, and I pray for you, the most significant place you encounter true humility. And Peter has painted a gospel which humbles us all throughout this book. I want you to look at the, the humiliating gospel that Peter has painted for us. And I want you to hear the actors. What is, who is acting and who is a, a passive participant in it? And then let that examine your response. And so look, beginning in 1 Peter 1, verse 3, Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. Knowing you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, 
who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope might be in God. Chapter 2, verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Verse 21 through 25 of the same chapter. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Chapter three, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. This gospel is Paul's mighty hand of God, which humbles us. See, there's no room for arrogant Christians when they have been served by the humbled Christ. It is Christ who came to serve you, and you are the recipient of an amazing grace. This is the gospel that Jesus died for your sins. Jesus knew only perfection and he chose to die in pain. Jesus knew only pure affection and he chose to know rejection. He knew only sinlessness and he came to bear the sin of the whole world. Jesus knew you and only you as your just condemnation for your sins, but he chose instead to give you his perfect righteousness. And if you don't see the humility in that, then you'll never have clarity on life. You'll never have a right direction on life because you'll never be able to understand the ultimate end of it. You'll never be able to understand your greatest problem. You'll never be able to understand what it is that stands at odds with who you are. But if you see the clarity of the sacrifice of Jesus and the wonderful humbling power of that gospel, then you can respond with humble adoration of the work which Jesus did to save you. When you think of the gospel, what is your emotion towards it? Is it this set of mere beliefs, which it is a belief, it is something to believe in, but does it strike you with the emotion that leads to humility? You see, faith and Christian living, which are two things we fight for on this campus. We want people to believe in the gospel and we want people to live in the gospel, but those are merely sounds which emanate from a heart struck by the mallet of Jesus' gospel. Those can't be mustered by the might of men, but they must come at the mercy of the Holy Spirit. And see, the truth is, your whole life, even the parts we like to compartmentalize into different sections, is a response to the gospel. This is true even for non-believers. This is true for people who don't think about the gospel actively. You're either responding to the gospel well or you're responding to it poorly. And the gospel is what gives us clarity on who God is, who we are, what's the purpose in life, what are we called to do? And so it would follow that in Peter's commission to these churches who are facing the hardship in life, he would give them a mindset of humility 
as the means of motivation. And what Peter is actually putting together is the clarity that comes through humility and the confidence that comes through the gospel. And this book that we've been studying, 1 Peter, is really a book about confidence. The series is called This Next Life, and 1 Peter 5, verse 6, really gets at the tension of this. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, for in the proper time you'll be exalted. Right now, we live a life of humility. We live a life of realizing weaknesses. We live a life of limited humanity. But one day, we live a life which is exalted. You see, Christians can be deceived into thinking, even Christians can be deceived into thinking that this life is all that matters. We put all of our eggs, all of our hope, all of our joy, and all of our confidence into this life. But on the flip side, we can also be so short-sighted as to think that the next life is the only thing that matters. And we go into our Christian hole on the ground and we pull our, our doomsday prepper shelter over our head and we just hope that we make it to the end. But what Peter's fighting for is he's fighting for both of those lives being held in tension. The priorities of those make it important. The perspective is intentional. And the best, uh, te- the best thing that Peter gives us in this is this tension. This what we've already been saved from and what is still yet to come in our salvation. And so what he's going to do here is he's going to give us three mindsets. Three mindsets of a humble heart which help us hold that tension. So for you, when you think of what is my life now? What is my humbled life? And how does my exalted life change that? How do you view that? How do you view that tension? What are some of those guiding principles? So let's take a look at the first mindset the gospel should create in you. First Peter, 1, or First Peter 5, verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So here we are, mid-semester. All of you probably have anxieties. All of you probably have circumstances in your life where you know full well that it does not take a really involved or really unique life to have circumstances which make us worry. Circumstances which stress us. And grammatically speaking, if you look at this text, this anxiety casting is really just a secondary description of what it looks like to humble ourselves. Casting our anxiety, as Peter's saying, is is part of humbling yourself. And this is actually what gives us the beautiful hope in this. This is the great mindset of the Christian. What Peter is saying here is that God's affection for you is greater than your affection for you. Do you see that? Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. The culture often diagnoses our problem. Part of this is because they don't have that humble clarity. They can't see what our right problem is. Therefore, they can't ever offer a right solution, no matter how loud they yell. And that solution is that we don't have enough self-love. If you're anxious about things, it's just because you have a wrong view of yourself. The problem is is that self-love really does nothing to fix our anxieties. You can really believe that you have a problem with acceptance. But if all you do is say that I accept myself, and you really try to believe that, that doesn't change the reality that you still live in a world where there's a perception of you. It doesn't automatically make you accepted by those around you. It doesn't change anything. In fact, if I'm anxious about life, which often I am, I don't go to my son Owen and cast all my anxieties on him because it wouldn't change anything. And even more than that, Owen probably wouldn't care. He'd just be upset that I took him away from his Legos. It does no good. 
to cast your anxiety on things that don't actually change anything. And in the same way, when we're confronted with your own anxiety, it does no good to see as a solution having a better or more optimistic vision about yourself because it doesn't change you. You see, if the solution to all of our worries, to all of our trials, to all of our suffering were to look inside and find the answer, then why are we so anxious? If it's inside of us all the time, why do we have anxiety? Why are anxiety medications on the rise? Why are we always looking for distraction? Why do we live lives at such a frantic pace so that we hope we don't ever have to stop and ask ourselves the questions of what really matters? But we do have anxiety. We do have weaknesses. We do have worries. And yet what the gospel holds up in the face of that is that the hope comes from the beautiful truth that God loves you more than you love yourself. If you think about it, that's incredibly freeing. Because you can't love yourself into salvation. You can't love yourself into a right understanding of your problem. But the Bible says, God showed his love for us in this, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is humbling for obvious reasons, that someone would love us more than we're our best lover. No one on earth loves Tyler more than Tyler loves Tyler. But God loves me more than I love me. And I know that because he met needs that I was completely unaware of. He came to me when I was violent towards him and hostile towards him, and he broke down the walls of my heart, not because he saw the great good that Tyler was capable of, but because he saw the redeeming power of Jesus Christ. And this provides a humble hope and trust in the God who cares for you better than you could care for yourself. You see, we will all face unknowns in this life. It, it, it could be a tragic thing for us right now to read the future of what will happen in the lives of you people in the next three years. There could be real hardships. There could be real tragedies. There could be real unknowns. But the beauty of the gospel is that you will never face those unknowns without the known love of God revealed to you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what P Paul said in Romans, meant when he said this in Romans 8, 28, or 8, 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, when you have a right understanding of salvation, when you see the, the humbling power of the gospel, of the Jesus who pursued you when you were far from him, the Jesus who ransomed you when you couldn't ransom yourself, you then can't talk enough of God's love for you. Because God loves you through his son, which is the most lovable object in God's eyes. And that love brings us hope in the midst of trying circumstances. This hope is that God not only is Lord over those circumstances and those hardships, but God brings those to you so that you might have a response. Anxiety is a response to hardships, but his desired response is that you would take that worry, you would take that fear, you would take that realization of your weakness, you would take that humility, and you would see that in that moment, God really wants you to know he cares for you, that God is for you that he is bigger than that and that he will never 
leave you. You see, humble hearts trust God in all things because they've responded to his beauty and his greatness. Like I said, no one has to preach to college students about the real presence of anxiety. And the truth is right now, all of you are already casting that anxiety onto something else. Be it a desire for a relationship, be it entertainment, be it food, be it media. But I want to ask yourself something. Does whatever you cast your anxiety on, does whatever you see as the solution to your frustrated heart, does it love you like God loves you? Will it care for you the way the gospel cares for you? Addressing both your immediate need and your eternal good. There's something better. There's a greater love. The second mindset that Paul or Peter gives us is seen in 1 Peter 1, the next verses, 5 through 8, or 8 through 9. I can't get numbers right. Uh, it says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the whole world. So here's the second point. If you want a humble confidence, you must understand that your enemy is strong, but God's global witness is stronger. Your enemy is strong, but God's global witness is stronger. This is interesting because whereas the last point reminds you of who is for you in all things, Peter now transitions to be to remind us of who is against us in almost all things. And I think we have a tendency, I have a tendency as a Christian to compartmentalize sin into two camps. Camp one is the devil made me do it. We exalt the devil and we put all of the blame for our, I would never sin, but Satan tricked me up and everything's his fault. And so we take no complicit blame for anything that happens in our life. We just say, if that dirty devil was gone, I would have no sin. But then there's the other camp that, that looks too much at the heart and says, man, I, uh, the only thing which is wrong in my world is that my heart is fallen. And that's what I'm prone to, right? I'm really good at not, I, I don't have many excuses for my own sin because I know my own heart. But Satan's not a myth. The devil is not a dressed up term for your own sinful temptation. And the truth is, you face a two-front war, a war of the passions within your heart and the devil without. And a British pastor named J.C. Ryle, who is a favorite on all of our GCF men's retreats, he says this, I know well that all souls are in a fearful peril. Old and young, it doesn't matter. All have a race to run, a battle to fight, a heart to humble, a world to overcome, a body to keep under control, a devil to resist. And we may very well say, who's sufficient for such things? But still every age and condition has its own peculiar snares and temptations, and it is well to know them. He who is forewarned is forearmed. And so Peter here is forewarning us with his personal conviction and experience that Satan will be opposed to any gains of holiness and humility in your life. 
Not only is it unnatural for our sinful hearts, but when we show that progress, there is a Satan who is opposed to you. There is a devil who wants to strip down the glory of holiness into dreadful rags and instead paint the rotten flesh of sin into a glorious reward. And he seeks to deceive you and disorient you and distract you. And yet despite both our, our, our hearts and their weaknesses, and Satan's offenses, you don't live as a Christian in a vacuum. This right here is one proof of that. None of you are doing Christianity alone. And God has given us the faith of the church and the suffering of the church for the health of the Christian. I don't know if I've mentioned this here in this group, but I really haven't stopped talking about it since it happened. Three weeks ago, there was a Christian family in our church who was from North Korea. And they're in North Korea as uh, they're Korean Americans through all these channels and they're in Korea with the specific intention to live and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's this family who's in the most closed country to Christianity, one of the most openly hostile regimes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here I am worried about sharing the gospel with a student on campus. Here I am angry and short frustrated with my children. And see, it's the witness of what they've endured that brings me encouragement and perspective in my own life. And God designed it that way. God's given us that for our own good. Look at what Paul says again in 2 Corinthians 3, uh, 1 verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that you share in our sufferings. You will also share in our comfort. You see, how beautiful is this? Jesus addresses this two-front war through the power of Jesus' resurrection. He has given you a power to fight against sin. As Chris prayed, that victory is won. But also, in the providence of God amidst suffering, he has given you a triumphal witness over sin in the life of believers around you and across the globe. You see, your active resistance to the devil's schemes, which Paul says you resist them by standing firm in the faith, by knowing and clinging to and standing behind the testimonies of God, that is good for you and is good for every single person in here. Do you realize that what happens in your private life is good for someone in here that you don't even know. As they see you growing in holiness, they're encouraged. As they see you suffering, they're reminded. As they see you striving, they're spurned on to join you. Your life and your faith matter to people in this room. Your life and your faith matter to people across the globe because that's the way God has designed it. And you see, it takes a humble heart to see that. Because we like to think it's all about us. My sin hurts only me. But your sin hurts God's church. But it takes a gospel heart to rise to the challenge 
and know that everything we do in our own walk, God increases exponentially to the glory of his name. See, gospel humility gives us the right expectation and the blessing of God's global witness in the church and across the globe. The gospel gives us a hope for the struggle within, but here we see God's church as an encouragement for the struggle without. When Satan comes against us, it is God's good desire that we should look at those around us and take hope as they resist and as they suffer. We will resist and we will endure the same hope. This leads us to the last mindset tonight. Your suffering is little, but your glory is eternal. Your suffering is little, but your glory is eternal. Let's take a look at Peter's words again in verses 10 through 15. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Don't you, the, it always amazes me the things biblical authors say. Here Paul is, Peter, I'm mixing Paul and Peter up because I'm quoting them all over in this. Peter is writing to this group that's enduring suffering. And Peter says, after you suffered for a little while, how helpful do you think that is without a gospel hope? What do you mean a little while? How long is a little while? That's not very encouraging. Unless there's something greater at stake. You see, this beautiful hope of being humbled by the gospel is this, that we may suffer even for a little while, even for 80 years, but you will gain so much more. And this takes humility to understand this because the first question we want to ask when suffering and hardship comes our way is, why me? How does suffering make us so arrogant? Why me? It's the cry of the sufferer. But for the humble believer, we realize that the suffering in our life does what Peter has told us it does in this book. The suffering in your life helps you to put off sin. The suffering in your life encourages those around you. The suffering in your life increases your faith. The suffering in your life reminds the world of a, of a day which will come when suffering is silenced and death dies. Who wouldn't want that? Who doesn't see the reward in that? And it takes humility to see even our greatest sufferings as little. You see, we want to inflate it, don't we? Just look at social media. We want to inflate our suffering. I was at the gym the other day and there was a guy just grunting all over the place and it was so distracting and it was off-putting to me and all I wanted to do was be the guy who tweeted some negative thing about the grunting guy at the gym. But why did I want to do that? Because I wanted you to share in my suffering. I wanted you to know, it was Caleb who was grunting, that's why he left. <laughs> Um, I wanted you to know that I have this experience and you could sympathize with it. Woe is me that there is a grunter in my gym. But what gives us a proper perspective on suffering is the eternal glory and reward in Jesus Christ. When was the last time you invited someone to share in your suffering? You wanted to make your suffering known. 
probably wasn't that long ago. But when was the last time you called someone to share in the joy of the hope you have in the gospel? When was the last time you called attention, not to the momentary displeasure, but, but to the eternal glory promised to us in the gospel? You see, this is the unique belief of Christianity. Lots of philosophies, they can tell you, yeah, one day suffering's gonna end. And what they're really telling you is, yeah, you're probably gonna die someday. But the beauty of Christianity is that it promises the end of suffering, but it also promises that one day it will all be undone. That one day you'll be rewarded. You'll be established. You'll be made perfect. You'll be strengthened. You'll be confirmed at the end of all things. Everything that was done in evil will be unveiled as something that increases the glory of God and the affection of his saints. And this is what Paul says in Romans 8, 18, where he says this, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. See, the expectation of the humble believer is that you will experience the best this world has to offer. You'll experience this world's joys and you'll experience this world's sorrows. But what is promised in the cross of Jesus is even more certain than those two realities. The cross promises that though it's Jesus who gets the dominion, it's us who get the everlasting delight. The gospel promises that though it's God who gets the glory, it is us who gets the guarantee. And in the gospel, we get the clear picture of the great need and the stunning confidence of God's promise for those who trust in him. And what I love about 1 Peter is it is a theology for all of life. Peter opens up talking about your trials, talking about your purpose in life. Then he transitions to gospel-shaped actions in work, in politics, and in the public sphere. Then he goes into relationships and in marriage. Then he drifts into describing the immense love we should have for those who are like us and the evangelistic love we should have for those who come against us. And it provides a whole life theology which creates for us a present worship experience in the joy and in the sorrow and the promise of a greater experience yet to come. So in the end... How do you endure this? How does that life become your life? How do you take this hope? Peter shares this with us in 1 Peter 5, 12 through 14, his closing words. By Silvanus, that was the scribe that Peter uh, had this written through, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love, the favorite verse of every college guy. Peace to you and all who are in Christ. Why did Peter write this book? He wrote this book so that you might see this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Do not be deceived, do not be shaken, do not be tempted, do not be wrought off track, do not be distracted, but believe it, stand firm in it, trust it, try it, taste it, experience it, and see if it comes up lacking. To the seekers or to the skeptics in here, this is your hope. I dare you to find me a system of belief or religion which is A, true, or that can B, offer a better description, a more realistic description of our world 
and a more secure hope. Find me another system of belief which addresses so unflinchingly the worst of our world, but also promises the redemption by God's best. To the believers, this is Peter's challenge for you. Stand firm in it. Life comes fast, but the gospel endures forever. So here are two things to assess your ability to stand firm. Do you know it? And can you give it away? And both of those things take massive amounts of humility. Because to say to a room of people who are at Grizzly Christian Fellowship, a ministry of Sovereign Hope Church, as a religious group, an ASUM, to ask, do you know the gospel? The initial answer is yes. But a humble heart looks at what is lacking in our understanding and seeks to know it more fully. The second thing is, do you give it away? If you know that grace, why wouldn't you give it away? You see, for a team fighting for medals and championships, humility bound them together for something great. How much more for a people group battling for life and death with the promise of a glorious eternal reward which saves us, endures us, and presents us holy and blameless before Christ. So for the good of ourselves, for the benefit of those around you, humble yourselves on the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is for your good and for the glory of those around us. It will be typified by the gospel that makes us humble. Let's pray. Lord, as Peter mentions, we cannot humble ourselves. But we are humbled only when we come in contact with something greater. So I pray that tonight, in a miraculous way, you make us to encounter something greater. You make us to experience something more. You make us to see something more clearly than we have ever seen before. And I pray that that shapes our affections. It shapes our view of God's love. It shapes our view of suffering. And it shapes our view of eternity. The God who has called us is faithful and he will do it. We love you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen.